you shouldn't shave but cultivate your down and let it grow so when you do return twill be soft and white as snow your lovely jane will be surprised to all begin to cook the greenhorn to his mother will say how savage i must look Hello and welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. And we are currently reading The Conspiracy of Pontiac by Francis Parkman Jr. This was his first work of history, published originally in 1851 in two volumes. And it is the first major work on, on Pontiac's um, rebellion. Of course, he calls it a conspiracy, which is something we can sort of unpack a little bit. Um, you know, uh, it's, of course, an old trope to kind of take movements of resistance and and call them conspiracies or call them uh, or to kind of give them this nefarious overtone. Um, and, you know, I think to Parkman's credit, he's using that language of conspiracy, but he does take his time and he does try to appreciate the the motives, the goals and the, the aspirations of of the Native American people who supported him, but primarily Algonquin Indians, but also some Iroquois speaking Indians participated in in the the rebellion, the the effort to prevent um, preemptively almost the dominance of 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 the British in North America. Um, it's it's very much a response, at least especially as Parkman describes it. It's very much a response to the defeat of the French in 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 1750, uh, the loss of Canada, or sorry, 1760, the loss of Canada, and then uh, the aftermath of that, which was the domination of, of Great Britain in North America, which would remain, of course, until the American Revolution, fundamentally changed the the pattern there. Um, so in, in the first part of this series, it's going to be five parts looking at this, this book. Um, he does a lot of his background work. Parkman does a lot of his background historical work setting up uh, the different Indian communities, their culture, their ways of life, their politics, their political organization, and, and their overall worldview and, and what he calls sort of their mental characteristics that they sort of have in common and and yeah there's a problematic effort to try to universalize things but at the same time he does go through different groups and looks at their diverse and distinct histories and political um, values then he talks a lot about the french position in north america the chapter is called france and england in america which is very similar to the name of his seven volume work france and england in north america but while that work looks at both uh the French and the English. Uh, that chapter mostly looks at the French, looks at the Jesuit experience, and looks at the the character of the of the French Empire in North America. And then the third chapter looks at the the relationship of the English and the French to especially the Iroquois uh, and the Algonquins and and the Indian groups in the region. And we see uh, more or less a tendency of especially the Iroquois to to support. The French, seeing as they'll get a better deal, um, seeing hoping to get a better deal from the French, and of course that is key to their decision to to respond as they did, um, Pontiac and others to respond as they did to the 
to the English victory in the Seven Years' War, sometimes called one well, the New World, called the the French and Indian War. So, in the the second part of of this series, I'm going to look at chapters four through twelve of this, and uh, Parkman starts to move into a very narrative-driven part of his his account, and for most of the rest of the book, he doesn't you know have this broad more analytical approach, what you might be used to in reading kind of standard academic history. He, that's in the first part a little bit more, but starting in chapter four and five, he really does begin to, to pursue kind of literary narrative history. And I know this is some of the criticism of Parkman over the years has been, he's, he takes a lot of liberties with the sources. He takes a lot of liberties in, in telling a story, but I, I think it's worth it, especially reading it 150 years later. 170 actually 170 years later we read this and 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 can look at the and and appreciate the stories and and imagine them and and you might you probably come at this more as literature if you want a a, a history of of Pontiac's revolt there's plenty of other other histories written since then back into the narrative of Indian alliances you know you, got, you can look at the rebellion of Tecumseh uh, the resistance to the United States in the in the Great West in the the so-called Indian Wars of the of the later 19th century and, and there's common tropes and 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 narratives here and and they're all inter intertwined in the history of Empire um, so yeah as I talked about with the the Ottoman Trail I think we need to look at Parkman uh, or we should look at Parkman as a as a as having a conversation about empire and about the the nature of American empire uh, in from the earliest days, right? Um, you know, I've I've said this a lot in this podcast over the few years I've been doing this, but yeah, we need to look at the United States as an empire from day one, and that that's key to so much of its literature, whether it's it's Melville or Jack London or Frank Norris or whoever. Um, it's an empire, of course, that has multiple victims, not just slaves and uh, not just indigenous people um, but you know the working class the international working class that made uh, the americas their their home uh, so even though he's not maybe conscious that he's writing a story of empire um, he doesn't always use that term he, he's more likely to use the term colonies um, although he does from time to time use that use talk about empire directly um, he's he provides that story, and I think that's that's why we might want to come back and, and listen to to Parkman's contribution to American history, and then just look at him as a one of the first historians of America who lays the groundwork for for generations of, of American historians in, in in coming years. I don't know how many historians read Parkman now. I'm sure Western historians do. Um, you know, I wasn't asked to read him in my training. Um, I came across him on my own, but. Anyways, um, so, yeah, what do we get in this part? Uh, this is actually a little bit more than 100 pages. I'm just, I'm breaking it up as it seems, seems proper. Um, so the first thing we get in this section is a fairly long chapter called The Collision of, of the Rival Colonies, 1700 to 1755. And this, despite the dates, it's really the, his history of the, of the Seven Years' War in North America, which he gives in a big fat book, Volume Seven, his final work in the in France and England and North America, *Multicom and Wolf*, which is basically the history of 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 the Seven Years' War and the fall of Canada. 
he gives that here in, in about 30 page in a 30 page chapter. So it's a, it's a long chapter, but he does lay out the big events of of the of the conflict, its major battles, and you know I won't go into the into every detail, but he's he he focuses on the few key events, and it all culminates in the Wolf's uh, siege of Canada of, of Quebec, the fall of Quebec, Wolf's death, of course, famous famously depicted in that that painting. The American painter Benjamin West, uh, you probably saw that in in a, in a history textbook at some point. Um, yeah, one of the keystone pieces of, of American art history. Um, but um, looks at that, and then he shifts very quickly to the Indians. And most of the rest of the section I want to talk about today focuses on the Indian response to this French defeat, and then uh, Pontiac's perspective on this, his anger, and then what Parkman calls his conspiracy, but really it was a an, an organized political and I, I think a fairly rational political and, and military response to the destruction of their of their of their ally. Now, this is a, I think there's a, a running theme in in the American history of the West, especially in the 18th century, uh, you know, starting with the French and Indian War, but also in the American Revolution of of Indians being militarily successful, um, achieving great victories. In fact, some of them are documented here in Chapter Four. You know, defeating the English, you know, decisively on the battlefield, in the frontier areas. But the overall campaign being lost first by the French, right? The French lose that campaign. And as a result, the, the Indians who were victors on the ground, who, who won their battles, who, who achieved actual substantial victories, you know, defeating whole armies of the British in the frontier, you know, destroying, taking forts and all that, because... Their side lost the war, they become the conquered, right? And that's what they feared. And this would happen again after the American Revolution. Uh, you know, there's a wonderful book called The Death and Rebirth of the Seneca. That's, that itself is like a 70-year-old text by this point, but it's very, very good at looking at the, the response of the Seneca, uh, Iroquois people, to a military defeat that was imposed upon them. Not because, they, again, they were not defeated in the American Revolution. They sided with the British largely, with a few exceptions, um, because it was the British who eventually agreed to the proclamation line. And it was the settlers, the colonists, who said, no, we want to conquer the West. And that's, of course, when the British leave, they hand over everything east of the Mississippi to the new uh, republic, the United States. And basically, diplomatically, in another Treaty of Paris, I was you know, both 76 and, and, no, sorry, I've got to get my dates right. Both 63 and 83, both treaties of Paris, and both led, they're both called the Treaty of Paris because that's where they're negotiated and signed, but they both handed over uh, uh, territory, that Indian territory to another power, uh, really without their consent and without their their negotiation, so they just become conquered people, kind of by fiat, not because they were, they were, they were literally conquered. Um, so we kind of kind of understand their their frustration at that uh, after the Seven Years' War, and you know what was in Pontiac's mind, what was in the mind of the other. Pontiac was in Ottawa, of course. You know, we get the story of how he was able to organize the the Ottawa, other Algonquins. I think the Seneca joined with him, the the Wyandots joined with him. So how was he able to create this confederacy 
that was able to, you know, pose a significant threat to British Empire. I mean, Parkman would not be writing this book if it didn't pose a significant threat, and it wasn't history changing this this event. It wasn't just a a marginal um, frontier war. It it ties directly to the American Revolution, which I which I think is part of his interest in it. Although Parkman himself certainly from early on was was fascinated with. The, the place of Indian people in American history. And, and that's why I think whatever problems there are in Parkman's depiction of, of various Indian groups, I think we got to understand he is one of the first, if not, he's the first historian I, you know, his, chronologically that I've come across that said, we need to take these people seriously as makers of history, as historical actors, and not just uh, kind of frontiers people that eventually would be passed over you know even now when you pick up a lot of history textbooks you know it's like maybe not college text so much but but high school history textbooks you know there's the chapter one is the indians and then you never hear from them again you know or maybe just mar you know once in a while you, you'll hear they'll show up into the story but only to be defeated uh but you know parkman does not see it that way parkman really does see them as as central to their uh to the history of 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 the United States, and yes, uh, and yes, they're key to to you know most major events of 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 American history, you know, even into the twentieth century. So, anyways, uh, chapter four of this book is called "The Collision of the Rival Colonies," uh, which that that the, the rival colonies were set up in the earlier chapters, but here we see the the history of this conflict, and it covers uh, seventeen hundred to seventeen. Uh, 55, um, you know, his, his dates are kind of, he's not very consistent here, to be honest, uh, that the vast majority of this chapter actually is set, you know, in like from 55 to 60 and the, but the dates for the chapter are 1700 to 1755 chapter five, uh, 1755 to 1763 is mostly about 1763. Um, but anyways, uh, look aside that, um, for now and you can see chapter four is kind of just a summary of of the seven years war in in north america and some discussion of the previous conflicts that that led up to it. of course the seven years war was one of a series of military conflicts going all the way back to to the 17th century between france and england uh, often fought in the americas but all these were global wars and european wars as well um so Parkman begins talking about uh, the, the fear of Canada by, by the English and the English colonists. Quote, uh, they hated him as a Frenchman, meaning the Canadians. They hated him as a papist. Hitherto he had waged his murderous warfare from the distance, wasting their settlements in rapid onsense, fierce and transient as a summer storm. But now, with enterprise and audacity, he was entrenching himself on their very borders. The English hunter in the lonely wilderness of Vermont as by the warm glow of sunset had piled the spruce boughs for his woodland bed, started as a deep, low sound struck faintly on his ear, the evening gun of Fort Frederick booming over lake and forest. Um, so, and again, this is something that's going to play with a lot more in a lot more detail in the big work, and that is how the rise of the, the French were a significant competitor to the English, you know, right up to the end, and becoming a stronger and stronger force of empire in North America. And so this wasn't the British finally getting rid of an annoying pest uh, up in Canada. It was 
a, a titanic struggle for who would dominate this, which empire would. And you had the French with many Indian allies in the Mississippi Valley, the Ohio River Valley, the Great Lakes, versus the, the English colonists right at the coast, right? And when we think about Pontiac's revolt itself, the strategy was, of course, destroy the forts, wipe out the forts in the frontier, then undefended, the victors of the, of the frontier would then be able to lay siege to the communities, the villages, the towns, the farms, in the colonies forcing the English to the sea, right? Because if you look at a map, and obviously we can't look at maps maps of empire with too much seriousness, right? They often just, you paint a whole region, you know, one color to say, oh, it was ruled by one, one country, right? When you see a map of 1914, a world map of 1914, say, oh, look at the British controlling all of Africa or much of Africa and the French had much of it. You know, in reality, you had informal arrangements. You had a lot of local polities that were still intact. You had different settler states and, and a, a host of different arrangements, right? With the French, it's the same thing. The French on the map look like they control all this territory, right? The, the Ohio River Valley, the Mississippi Valley, going farther west, and all the Great Lakes in Canada. In practice, though, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a negotiation with the people that live there. Right. But nevertheless, their strength is, is their position is strengthening. They're becoming increasingly powerful. And this leads the English to to respond with a great degree of fear. And, you know, and where is this conflict going to be fought? Well, it's going to be fought on Indian land. It's going to be fought on in, in on Indian territories. And Parkman says this directly, quote, quote, while the rival nations were beginning to quarrel for the prize, which belonged to neither of them. The unhappy Indians saw with alarm and amazement their lands becoming a bone of contention between rap, rapacious uh, strangers. The first appearance of the French in the Ohio excited the wildest fears in the tribe in that quarter, among whom, among those who, dis, disgusted by the encroachments of the Pennsylvanians, had fled to these remote territories to escape the intrusions of white men. Scarcely was their fancied asylum gained when they saw themselves invaded by a host of armed men from Canada. Thus placed between two fires, they knew not which way to turn. There was no union in their councils, and they seemed like a mob of bewildered children. Um, yeah, uh, you know, I could, I, I can't help but to have some kind of, you know, of two minds when I read this. On the one hand, yeah, he shouldn't be calling them children. He shouldn't be comparing, you know, their response, which obviously was going to be diverse, obviously going to be conflicted, obviously going to be. Uh, debated and discussed and and sometimes mismanaged whatever but these are societies in chaos in disruption you know whether it was by the Iroquois expansion uh, and and those those wars which I talked about last time or certainly the 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 growth the, the massive growth in the 18th century of the of the British colonies the empowerment of the French position in North America obviously the response in all these different autonomous communities is going to be very, very different. It doesn't make mean that, you know, we shouldn't say that's childlike. Maybe in comparison to Pontiac, you say, oh, look, Pontiac was able to unify these or Tecumseh later on was able to unify these groups. But, you know, that doesn't mean that their response before was disorderly and childlike. Um, nevertheless, though, he, he's insisting that, you know, this is their land and... And they were right to feel terrified by this. Um, 
Now we get some re rehashing of the French uh, efforts at at um, diplomacy among the Indians and their overall success. And then within a few pages of this chapter, which again, I remind you, is called the Collision of Rival Colonies, 1700 to 1755, we jump right into the Seven Years' War, um, which, um, you know, is his major theme here. And that's fought from 17, uh, 1755 to 1763, <laughs> the, the very dates that aren't included in this, um, the chapter title. Okay, uh, already 20 minutes in. Uh, haven't even really started. Uh, um, we get of different campaigns. We, we, we get the, the narrative description of some of the early English defeats, the, the Crown Point campaign, uh, various different expeditions in the frontier that were defeated through an alliance of French and, and Indian groups. But eventually how the English were able to kind of secure um, some uh, stabilization in their campaigns something kind of almost a nominal victory. And uh, then finally, the bulk of this chapter is a description of Wolfe's campaign to Quebec. Uh, we get a summary of his character. And I'm not going to say too much about this just simply because I'm, I got a whole book to talk about um, Wolfe's Wolf's character. Um, but if you are interested in military history, I think this is worth looking at. It kind of holds up just as interesting narrative, literary military history, which I know is like... You know, I'm a labor historian. No one, very few people, not no one, but very few people go to like Barnes and Noble and pick up uh, the, the Steelworkers of Chicago or some book like that. They, they pick up biography and they pick up military history. Those are the most popular um, trends. But uh, this chapter ends with the fall of Wolf. And of course, not long after the surrender of, of Quebec in 1759. And that it doesn't end the war. Obviously, the war has continued to be fought on a global scale in Europe and in India um, after that. But as far as North America is concerned, the war starts to die down. The French position is untenable in, in North America. Yet the Indians, they did not realize this. They did not know this. They were not fully aware of the depth of this defeat. And they weren't aware that in 63, when Pontiac's rebellion begins, that the French were working out a peace treaty, which would have handed over Canada and the Mississippi Valley to the British. And they didn't know the French weren't coming back. They believed the French could not be defeated so easily um, by and so quickly. And they very much expected the, the French to return. Now, chapter five is called The Wilderness and Its Tenants at the Close of the French War. This is actually, I think, one of the most interesting chapters in this section of the, the book. Um, because it doesn't just talk about, uh, you know, the situation during the war in the frontier, which we, we sort of already is laid out a little bit militarily in the previous chapter. He's talking mostly about the people, the people that live there, whether they're the Indian groups, the native population and the consequences of the war on the native population of of like the Ohio and the Great Lakes. Um, but also of, of people of European descent who, had, who made the frontier, who made the wilderness their, their home. And since so much of Pontiac's re rebellion will take place in this frontier regions, I, I think it, Parkman's right to, to dwell a little bit on their, 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 their situation. Um, here's what he writes a little bit about them. Uh, the feeble garrisons of all those Western poets, exiled from civilization, living in the solitude of military hermits, 
Through the long, hot days of summer and the protracted cold of winter, time hung heavy on the hands. Their resources of employment and recreation were few and meager. They found partners in their loneliness among the young beauties of the Indian camps. They hunted and fished, shot at targets, and played at games of chance. And when, by good fortune, a traveler found his way among them, he was greeted with a hearty and open-hearted welcome, implied with eager questions touching the great world from which they were banished men. Yet tedious as it was, their secluded life was seasoned with stirring danger. The surrounding forests were populated with a race dark and subtle as its own sunless mazes. At any hour, those jealous tribes might raise a war cry. No human foresights could predict the sallies of their fierce captors, and in ceaseless watching lay the only safety. When the Europeans and the savage are brought into contact, they're both gainers and both losers. The former loses the refinement of civilization, but he gains in the rough schooling of the wilderness a rugged independence, a self-sustaining energy, and powers of action and perception before unthought of. The savage gains new means of comfort and support, cloth, iron, and gunpowder, yet these apparent benefits are often proven but instruments of ruin. They soon became necessities, and the unhappy hunter, forgetting the weapons of his father, must thenceforth depend on the white man for ease, happiness, and life itself. End quote. So, you know, a couple of things to rehash here. Obviously, we got the frontier thesis hinted at here. Uh, that would not be written down fully until um, Turner in, you know, a half century later. But also this, this, depend, this, this dependence commercially, economically on, on the whites did have a long-term impact on it. And it made things like um, Pontiac's revolt all the more desperate um, in reality because, you know, they were really seeing themselves like fundamentally they were going to lose what hold they had left. But to do so meant destroying what also was tying them and, and was so much a basis of the culture as it was emerging through decades and decades in fact, you know, a couple centuries of contact with, with the Europeans. Um, but a lot here that kind of makes us think about uh, Turner's frontier thesis anyways. Um, the next chapter, chapter six, is called The English Take Possession of the Western Posts, 1760. So with the war dying down in North America, we start to see the handover of these various forts and we get some of the drama involved in that. Um, but his overall conclusion here is... It's kind of uh, something I was talking about before with how we really can't look at the map and talk about power and just say, oh, it's painted the color of one empire or another, and therefore it's, it's ruled by them. Um, it's really just a handful of forts uh, in the frontier that get handed over from the French to the British. And even Parkman says how ludicrous it sort of is to say that, that because the British got a few French forts, uh, like Detroit and other places, that... You know, that, that, you know, the reality of life there changes that much. Uh, quote, there's something ludicrous. This is him saying that there's something ludicrous in the disparity between the importance of the possession and the slenderness of the force employed to maintain it. A region embracing so many thousands of miles of surface was consigned to the keeping of some five or six hundred men. Yet this force, small as it was, appeared adequate to its object, for there seemed no enemy to contend with. The hands of the French were tied by the population and little apprehension was felt from the red inhabitants of the world the last the lapse of two years sufficed to show how complete and fatal was this mistake so i think he's suggesting he suggests several different causes of, of pontiac's revolt ultimately the defeat of the french was the key reason for the uprising well uh i just had some visitors so i had to stop for a minute uh but let me wrap this up I'm, I'll, I'll say a little bit more about pontiac's plan in the beginning of the next episode. I don't think it's that important. We 
divided up too precisely, um, but this seems to be the main causes are this. One, um, the weakness of the British position on the frontier, giving the Indians in Pontiac the feeling that there was an opportunity to achieve total victory over the frontier forts, which would then leave the settlements open to attack. Second was the very, very firm belief that uh, the French were present in North America and, and still a sustainable force. Um, the, the lack of knowledge about the, the, the total French defeat, the Treaty of Paris, and the belief that settlers were going to follow uh, the, the English conquest of the, of the frontier and those forts. And finally, the biggest picture, and that's why Pontiac is so important. So I'll talk about him in the next next episode a little bit more. The Pontiac's capacity to take general Indian resentment over this new situation and mobilize it into a, a general war against against the British, which organized again not just Algonquins, but uh, you know Iroquois-speaking people too, like the Wyandots and the Seneca. So, uh, you know, I'm going to just stop for now and I'll finish up in the next, epi- in the next episode talking about the rest of actually the first volume of, of the Conspiracy of Pontiac, which is, um, um, and, and much of the next episode deals with kind of the narrative of the early conflict, especially the siege of Detroit, uh, which was where the major battle was. And then the, the, and the, and the fighting near Michelin Mackinac, which is, is referred to a little bit as well. So um, with that, I'm going to, to leave you for now. If you have any of your any comments for me about any of these issues, please leave them below or send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. Um, but uh, yeah, that's going to be it for now. So I'll see you next time when I finish up volume one of The Conspiracy of Pontiac. for bread and meat, for coffee and for brains. Your 60 days are 100 or more in your grub you've got to divide. Your steers and mules are alkaline, so put it you cannot ride. You have to stand a watch at night to keep the engines off. About sundown, some heads will ache and some...